0: We'll pick up our series on toxic leadership in 1 Samuel, chapter number 22. First Samuel, if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. 1 Samuel 22. And I know for many of us, it's been a long weekend. I will not—I don't believe I'll need to preach a lengthy message tonight, but I hope it'll be a helpful message. And uh, many have been here early yesterday morning and late yesterday night, and, and people serving all throughout the day, and, and uh, then the full day today. But we're back in 1 Samuel 22, in this series, studying the life of— of King Saul. Where we're at, because it's been a little while since we've been in the series, we had different things going on throughout the, uh, the month, some guest speakers and some other things that happened. Where we're at in 1 Samuel 22, Saul has sought to kill his son-in-law David, his, the heir to the throne, the one that God has anointed to replace him on the throne. He sought to kill him on three separate occasions. And David has now run for his life. David is not anywhere near there. He's gone. He's fled from it for his life. And Saul has seemingly eliminated his competition, if you will. And the threat that he perceived, which by the way, David was no threat. David did nothing but serve Saul joyfully and humbly and graciously, but Saul didn't see it that way, and David's gone, and really Saul, he, he, what more does he want? He got rid of him. He scared him out into the wilderness, and uh, David's just kind of on the run. He's a, he's a refugee, if you will, just trying to find, find some amnesty somewhere, find some health and safety somewhere, and, uh, and, and, but Saul can't let it go. And tonight we're going to look and we're going to see some dangers for anyone that's in any position of authority, whether it be at work, at, at a teenager that has influence in a younger sibling, a, a parent uh, uh, in a church uh, setting, whatever it might be. And we're going to see some dangers, that, that some things that we might be tempted, ways that we might be tempted to respond in our areas of authority, and, and ways that we might be tempted to lead that will lead to great damage to those relationships that God's given us and to the authority that God's given us. The title of this evening's message is Pitfalls for Every Leader. Some pitfalls that can creep up in our hearts and lives that, that, that cause a lot of problems and damage in those that we're supposed to be leading and serving and loving. And I want us tonight, the goal with all of these messages, this is our 16th message. I hadn't planned for it to go this long, but uh, this is just how it's gone as I've continued to study through 1 Samuel. Uh, This is our 16th message, and the goal with this entire series is not for you to sit there and say, yeah, you know what? My husband sometimes does that. Yeah, I had a boss like that, or I have a boss like that. Oh, I I was in a church one time that had a pastor that was kind of like that, or a youth pastor. My Christian school principal at one point was like that, or my high school coach was like that. The goal is not for us to identify what's wrong with a current or former leader in our lives. The goal is for us to take inventory in our own hearts and, and maybe learn from if we've had a toxic leader somewhere in our lives. And I mentioned at the very beginning. All of us have had toxic leaders, and all of us have been toxic leaders on some level, because all of us have the toxicity of sin in our lives. There is no perfect husband, there is no perfect wife, there is no perfect parent, there is no perfect teacher, there is no perfect pastor. Now there are definitely, there's definitely a spectrum, and there are definitely levels of toxicity, and we want to look and say, oh, I see that seed being planted there, and I want to pluck that up before it becomes a, an overarching um, piece and prevalent, prominent piece of my leadership. But the goal is not for you to sit there and say, man, I'm so glad pastor's preaching this, I need to send this to so-and-so. No, the goal is, God, do I need to make some changes in my relationships, in my roles in life, in the way that I follow, in the way that I lead, in the way that I interact with fellow church members, with co-workers, with bosses, with with subordinates, with superiors, whatever the case may be, with government officials. What are those things in our lives? I want us to take inventory. so David's running, Saul finds out where David is hiding, and Saul pursues to go find him. We're going to pick it up for the sake of time in verse number 7. I want us to read verses 7 and 8 aloud. First Samuel chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. Let's read that aloud together. Ready? Begin. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards, and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. He says he has his group here. He said, I want you to hear me. You can can sense the disdain. You can sense the condescension. You can sense the the anger, the suspicion, the accusation. You can can sense all of these things in his heart as he talks. He won't even refer to David as David. That that, that guy, that son of Jesse, that little boy, he he doesn't even refer to him by his name, just that son of Jesse, none of you. And, And he goes and he basically rips into those that are serving him. What did David ever do for you? And, and, and he goes and he basically, unreasonably, rips into them and basically tells them, what good are you guys if for me? You are of no value to me. And I want us to see from these two verses and a few others in this chapter some pitfalls from Saul's leadership. And by the way, we'll see here that, that Saul's heavy-handed leadership didn't work. When he commands, number one, he lost a relation with his son because of it. He 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 lost his kingdom because of his ungodly leadership. And when he tries to squeeze his followers tighter and says, you need to go find that, there's always somebody that's, that's, that's in their heart thinking, this isn't right. I need to do the right thing. And they're going and telling David. You're going to see—we won't read it all, but if you want to go back and read 1 Samuel 22, you'll see multiple times. Jonathan would do it at times. Somebody will—they'll leave and they'll go. They'll, they'll be in the staff meeting with Saul. They'll be in the, in the troops meeting with Saul, and they'll be like, I don't think that's the spirit God would want. I need to go let David know that, that Saul's about to do this to him. And, and those that Saul was trying to control and squeeze, he was actually losing control of. And, and toxic leaders, that will happen in, in our lives when we become that. So what pitfalls do we see in this passage for us as leaders? Number one, I see here the pitfall of comparison. Comparison, Leveraging what he can do for them or for those that he leads to try to gain their allegiance. Do you see it in verse number seven? Then Saul said unto his servants... Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? What does he have to offer that I don't? Can he do this for you? Don't you see how powerful I am? Don't you see how important I am? Don't you see how nothing he is? He was so focused on trying to compare, and then the things that he could offer, haven't I done this and this and this? And it's a dangerous thing when we get into leveraging what we can give to try to gain allegiance. That's a dangerous game to play. And, and I've been there and, you know, with, with our kids and, and, and you know, uh, talking about whatever it might be. I, I pay your bills and I feed your food, and so just go do it, and that's fine. And that's fine at times, maybe, and there might be a time and a place just to say, be quiet and do what I said because I said so. But ultimately, in any area of leadership, it ought not be because of some power we leverage over them, but because of a relationship, a love, and a respect that we have one toward another. And he says to them here, this pitfall of comparison, don't you think I'm better? What is he gonna do for you? That guy that's off running, why do you all wanna serve him? By the way, they didn't. He's got this all mixed up in his head. He's, he's such an insecure leader. He thinks that if they wanted to go serve with David, they would have gone and served with David. They're doing everything Saul asks, but he has it mixed up. You don't really wanna be here. You don't really wanna do this. What does David have to offer you that I don't have? I've done more for you. Hey, you like me better than you like David, right? What an insecure leader. But we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? You like me better than that other teacher, don't you? Or that other coach, don't you? Or that other parent, don't you? When the Lord brought me to here six years ago, and we made the transition from a pastor that had faithfully his wife served here for 25 years— and this church, did, other than a handful of you, didn't know my wife and me from Adam and Eve. We, you didn't know who we were. And we came in that, that first week of July and preached and got to meet the church. And, and, and in August had a q and or maybe July Q&A time, and, and then came back in August. And, and, and I told the church, I told the church, I said, if this is going to be a healthy transition, it's going to take three groups of people being mature and secure in where God has put them. It's going to take the church family not constantly comparing— well, I like what Pastor Thompson does better than Pastor Tomlinson. Well, Pastor Ryan, I don't like his sense of humor. I like, and well, Pastor Tomlinson never would have done that. Well, I'm so glad you're doing that, Pastor Tomlinson. And if that would have been the spirit, this church would not have had a healthy transition. It wasn't about who's better. It's God had a certain leader here for a certain period and God used him and his his unique gifts and his unique personalities and his unique experiences. And then when God wanted, he brought another one. It was This was not a, a heist, and I even said this, this is not a heist school or junior high dating relationship, check the box. Do you like me? Yes or no? This is the family of God. Pastor Thomas and I are not in competition. And, and I, I, I'm not trying to be better than Him, or to outshine Him, or—I I respect we communicate literally every week, and I don't know that there's been a week that's gone by in six years that we've not either texted, or communicated, or a phone call, or an email, or a, a Facebook direct message, or, or an interaction this on social media. And there, there's—I'm not trying to be Him, and He's not trying to be me, but I said it's going to take the church. And then I said it's going to take my wife and me, not having that spirit of comparison. Oh, you like us, Pat? I know you were here with Pastor, but like my preaching's kind of better than his, right? Well, why, why would I say something like that? No, it's and then it's going to take. And by the way, pastors on their way out sometimes can undermine the leadership and the work that they did for many years with a spirit of insecurity and pride and comparison. And I said it's going to take Pastor and Mrs. Tomlinson being humble and godly and not not. You still love us, right? And, And if all three do that, we'll have a healthy family that will grow together. And six years later, they're still members of our church. Their missions ministry still runs through our church. Every check that goes to Barnabas 1040 gets cut from our offices and sent out there. they're, They're here a couple Sundays a year. What a beautiful picture of how it should be. Why? Because nobody that I'm aware of fell into that trap of comparison. Janice, I don't know if you remember this. I think it was the Sunday night I got voted in. Janice was a staff member. We had been on staff together for six or eight weeks. And, uh, and Janice, Janice uh, they, they voted me in, and we were in the lobby, and Janice is just sobbing. And I'm like, man, she's really excited. I'm the new pastor. <laughs> and Janice told me in the lobby, she said, I'm so sorry. It's not that I don't like you. It's not that I'm not excited. But Janice and Kevin got saved here at that point 25 years ago. It's the only pastor they'd ever known. It's the only pastor they'd ever worked for. And here she is apologizing to me. I'm sorry, I really do. I said, Janice, if you weren't crying, there'd be something wrong. That's your only pastor you've ever known, and you and your husband, and and, there's no threat to me that, that you have a love and an appreciation and even a sorrow that that relationship is going to be different than the way that it was, and that's okay. And we'll grow together, and we'll build a relationship together, and you'll get to know me, and I'll get to know you. And I'm not asking you, I hate Pastor Tomlinson so that I can love Pastor Ryan, but sometimes we do that. We'll do that at work. A pastor will do that with staff, parents will do that with their children, that, 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 that pitfall of comparison. Uh, sometimes extended family will put this pressure on their grown kids. Why do you always spend time with that side of the family? You love me more than you love them, right? Parents when they split up will sometimes try to leverage what they can to gain those kids' love and allegiance and poison their child against the other parent. How toxic that is. Well, here's why we broke up. It's your mom's fault. It's your dad's fault. It's—your it's, it, dad was never a good dad. Your mom was never a good—this is why. How, how dangerous. My mom and dad were split up. They never lived together. They were split up. They never lived together. So they were, I guess, humanly speaking, always split up. I was born, and he never lived in our home. But I still have a very close relationship. And do you know, at my age, all the years I've been alive, I've never heard my mom say a single negative thing about my dad. There had to have been something negative happen. They didn't stay together. Like, they were dating, they loved each other. My mom would tell you that he was the love of her life, and, 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 that, and they never stayed together. Something negative happened. My mom has never, when he got remarried, never talked badly about his wife, my, my stepmom Dale, who was here in church earlier this summer in June. Never once. Never once did Dale feel threatened and talk badly about my mom. Never once has my dad talked badly about my mom, and I've I've spent time with them every year of my life, multiple times per year, throughout every year. Never once! And I'm so thankful for that example of they must have had some adult-level problems that I don't know all of the reasons why. They were young in their early 20s, had a kid unexpectedly, and both stayed involved in their lives. Of course, my mom raised me, and my dad stayed involved, and, and it didn't work for them to raise me together. They were unsaved, they were not believers, and whatever. That was the path they took but never once did they try to turn me against the other one. I'm so glad I saw a healthy relationship. Be careful of that pitfall of comparison. Number two, do you see it here in verse number eight? The pitfall of suspicion. Suspicion. You ever write or type a word and you're like, that's not spelled right. That was me in the notes. That just doesn't look, when I say suspicion, it doesn't look like that's how it's supposed to be spelled, but but my thing didn't put a squiggly line under it, so I think that's the way it's supposed to be spelled. Suspicion. Healthy leaders cannot and will not live in constant suspicion of who is going to hurt them next. You just can't live that way. Do you see it in verse 8? Look at it. That all of you have conspired against me. Was that true, church? Talk to me, yes or no. Is that true? Had every person that followed him conspired against him? But he got in his mind, he's out to get me, David's out to get me, Jonathan's out to get me. David and Jonathan served him beautifully. You're all, you've all conspired against me. There is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me. Nobody feels badly for me, or showeth me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. None of that was true. The only thing that was true was that David and Jesse, I'm sorry, David and Jonathan did have a, a league together. They did have a friendship. That's the only true part of that whole verse. But he viewed everybody through his view of, that member's out to get me. That pastor, he, he's got it out for me. That, they don't like me over there. They don't involve me there at work. This person's got—and by the way, sometimes maybe somebody does have it out for you. But may I just say this? It's a terrible way to live, to always be looking, coming at every relationship from a posture of, how are they out to get me? Bible says, love beareth all things, charity in verse Corinthians 13, believeth all things, hopeth all things. The, the idea is our posture, our default posture is one of believing the best, not the worst. And, and uh, uh, Saul, he believed the worst. May I just say, stop looking for how, every, how you think everyone has it out for you. That's a sign of a toxic mindset. Everything your spouse does, you read into it. And here's the amazing thing with our brains. Once we get an idea in our brains about something, everything else we see confirms that truth. That's the way our brains work. You want to hear about—I've used this illustration before. You want me to prove it to you in a, in a practical way? Decide you want to buy a certain car, Start or buy a certain car. As soon as you test drive a car or buy a car, guess what you see all over the road? That car. It's what you see everywhere. As soon, now, you might see it before that, but as soon as you, you buy whatever it is, fill in the blank, you start seeing it everywhere. A few years ago, they came out with the uh, Kia Telluride, and we're always looking for a vehicle that would fit seven comfortably, or maybe eight if our kids want to bring a friend along. And so they they came out with this thing, and I, I, I saw it, I looked at it on the internet, and guess what I started seeing everywhere I drove? Then I went, and I found out the Hyundai Palisade was basically the same car with just a little bit different trim levels and just a little different cosmetic. And I actually went to the dealership and got inside of a Palisade and sat there. And then I looked at the sticker, and I left, and I never bought it. But, but I sat there and enjoyed it for a few minutes. And guess what? I, I, even to this day, that was a couple years ago. You know what I see on the road a whole lot? Kia Tellurides and Hyundai Palisades. When you want to look for something, you'll find it. You get something in your mind or in your heart about a spouse, about a child, about a parent, about a teacher, about a coach, about a pastor, about a a player on your team, about a student in your class, about a parent. They send you one negative email, and you start to think they hate me. They have it out for me. Every interaction will confirm that in your mind. Everything. If you start to think that I was preaching about you this morning or tonight or last week and, well, Pastor Ryan, he walked by me and didn't say, he must have a problem with me. He walked by me in the lobby and didn't say hello to me. Guess what? Every interaction, when that comes in your mind, every interaction we have will confirm it. There's nothing that I'll be able to do, especially if it's not true, because I don't know that it's, that it's there in your heart or mind. The, every interaction we have will confirm that when I preach about this, oh, he must be talking to me again. I remember one time I was a, an administrative pastor of our, our home church in Northern California. On a Sunday morning, that church, when I was there, would run about 2,500 people. That's a lot of people. And, and the auditorium would seat over 1,000, maybe 1,500, ah, 12 to 1,400 adults would be in, in any one service at a time. And I remember a man calling me. And, and I had heard my pastor, who was my father-in-law, preach the whole day on Sunday. And he called me on Monday, and he said, "I, I, I got to talk to you. I need to talk to Pastor Trever. I need to talk to him." Last night's message, he was preaching at me. He kept looking at me, and he kept pointing his finger at me. And I know the whole message was about me. And I thought. I'm like in every staff meeting. Not only that, he's my father-in-law. I'm, I'm at family meals all of the time. We go out together. Our kids go see their grandparents all of the time. We, we con- communicate about ministry things all of the time. I'm, I'm At that point, I'm not trying to sound private. I'm the second-in-command on staff. Like, I handle staff meetings. I know I'm in leadership meetings. I know the intricacies of what's going on in our ministry. Your name has not come up once anywhere of any concern whatsoever. Like, usually, if there's a concern in the ministry, I'm aware of it, given my—but but this man was convinced the whole—that there's a thousand people sitting out there, and my father and I spent the whole week preparing a whole sheet to stand up there and single out this one guy out of a thousand. It's amazing. And I'm not saying that a pastor has never stood up and singled somebody out. Unfortunately, we pastors are not perfect, and we've let our flesh get the best of us sometimes. That has happened at times, I'm sure, with pastors, but I know for sure in that situation that wasn't the case. Be careful that pitfall of suspicion. Oh, why did my wife say it that way? Why did she send that text? Oh. My, my, I, I posted this on my—whatever uh, it might be on social media, and my my, my family, my extended family, my boss, my, my, my daughter, my son interacted in that way, and we start reading into everything, a dangerous place to get to read into everything. That's happened with—I've heard teenagers talking about with social media, if certain number of people don't like their post, or if somebody comments but another person doesn't, or if, if I post this and this person didn't like it, we were, there was a group of teens that I was chatting with this summer and somebody posted a certain thing on, on a birthday of somebody, and the other person didn't share that to their post, and all of a sudden it was, what do you think, what message are they sending? They didn't repost my birthday greeting to them on their thing. Who cares? It Stop the mindset, that mentality of suspicion. Every friend has it out for me, every teacher, every boss— every subordinate, every coach, every player, every family member, every church member, every spiritual leader, every pastor. You parse everything. You analyze it, and then you always believe the worst about it. Number three, the third pitfall that that Saul fell into was the pitfall of accusation. Look at the words he used in verse number eight. This one hit me because it's one I have to work on. Notice the second word of verse number eight. What's the second word of verse number 8? That what, church? That all. Go down to the—that all of you have conspired against me, and there is—what's that next word? What's that word? None. None that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is—what's that next word? None of you that is sorry for me, or any of you—or any of you that shows me. Be careful about using absolutes and extremes in your communication you always. If you do that, I will never. You never fill in the blank. How come come none of you ever? Be careful. Those words are powerful. And they can create, if if a pastor stands up to a church, none of you ever do. does, Does anyone in here love God? I'm pretty sure some people love God. Boy, that—pastor, you have never—husband, you always—the reason this one hit me, I was with a Christian counselor earlier this year. I was meeting uh, individually for, for some, uh, an area of struggle in my own life. I was meeting with a Christian counselor, and, and he was asking me for my side of the story, if you will, and sharing my perspective on this situation that I was walking through. And I was sitting there, and I said, well—and whatever I said, I don't remember the exact sentence, and he stopped me. He said— be careful. You use a lot of absolutes. You say never and always a lot. You, you say, and, and, and it made me think, yeah, that's really not true what I'm saying. I'm building that up bigger in my mind than it is. I need to be careful because that's, that's affecting some relationships in my life that really mean a lot to me. I need to be careful about that. The pitfall of accusation, always looking for this is what's wrong here. And and in this verse, I want us to realize the reality wasn't nearly as bad as Saul had convinced himself it was. And when we get to that place in our minds, the littlest thing will set us off. Be careful when talking to your kids' parents, or, or, or ki- to your parents' kids, or about authority and saying, well, he always, you come home, and that teacher always, and Mr. Cyprian never, and and, my, and pastor always, and, and mom, you never, and my brother always. Be careful about that stuff. It's probably not true. We're probably making it a little bit bigger in our minds, and when it gets there, every little thing will set us off. It's a pitfall that will lead you and the ones you lead to unhealthy mindsets and toxic interactions. Saul, I want you to think about this. When, when after Saul started in his kingdom, when in his entire, everything we've studied, and if you read through 1 Samuel, when did Saul ever praise his son for anything? When did he ever stop to find the good about anything? I'm going to use an absolute. From what I can see in recorded scripture, Saul never found anything good about Jonathan. Jonathan won a great victory for him. Jonathan spoke truth into his life. Jonathan gave him some reasonable counsel and logic, and guess what? Saul's response to always find what was wrong? Be careful if your posture in that area of leadership—you're a teacher, you're a parent, you're a a husband, uh, you work in in the military, you work in business, in construction, in in a corporate office, in finance, whatever it might be. Wherever your roles of life are, be careful that you can never find anything good about those in relationship closest to you. It's easy to find what's wrong, isn't it? Sometimes that's my default uh, to, to find out how to fix that. And I feel like it's a gift that God's given me to see problems and fix them, but it can also be a curse because then all I ever see is a problem. And everything is a problem. And I find something wrong with everything. And if I'm not careful, I'll push people away from me because it's always, and I'm not saying in in roles of leadership, you've got to deal with issues. And there has to be times of correction, but there should also be times of recognition and of praise. My wife and I were talking about one of our children this week, and I stopped. We were saying some good things about one of our kids while we talked together. And I I thought, you know, rather than us just saying this to each other, I need to stop. And I sent a text to one of my kids. Hey, mom and I were just talking, and I want you to know X, Y, Z and we're so proud of this and this and this and a couple of weeks ago I took another one of our kids out and I was talking to one or two of my kids I can't remember and I said I just want you to know we're really proud of the spirit you've shown here and the way you're walking through this and and if you need anything come to us there are plenty of times that we're correcting and there are plenty of times we're telling them go make your bed and clean up your room and don't talk to your mom like that and and go to your room we're going to deal with that that was disrespectful and don't lie and there's plenty of correction that has to happen in 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 the running of a home of five children but is there any praise is there any finding of the good? Is there any rejoicing together, or is it all accusation? All we see is the, ne- the, the the never, the always. Saul could not find one good thing to praise his son Jonathan about. Parents, catch your kids doing right and make a big deal out of it. Employers, catch your employees doing right, doing well, and make a big deal out of it. Uh, uh, I was re- I'm was i reading a book right now, the founder of Ritz-Carlton, and I think I'm going to implement it in our staff, and he was talking about how they were in a staff meeting, and somebody said, somebody said, uh, uh, this happened, and here's how I handled it. And he said, that was incredible how you did that on your own in initiative. He said, around here, we have what are called lightning strikes. And when we find people doing good, we zap them with $50 gifts. What a great thing to do. It doesn't have to be $50 gifts, but find your kids doing something and zap them with something positive. We zap them with enough negative in your class, in your, in, in your church, at your work, in your home, zap them with some things good. Accusation. Number four, and I'm almost done. Number four, what do we see? The pitfall of guilt, leading by guilt. What was Saul's overall strategy in these two verses? He was trying to get them to do what he wanted them to do. He was trying to get their loyalty and their allegiance. And how was he doing it? He was trying to do it by making them feel guilty that they weren't doing enough. All of you conspire against me. Nobody tells me what's going on. Nobody tries to help me. Again, true, yes or no? No, that wasn't what what he's saying. That wasn't true, right? What what he's saying, that that wasn't true. But he believed it was true. His overall strategy was to get his followers to feel badly that they weren't doing enough for him. And leading by guilt is a great strategy for short-term submission. It's a terrible plan for long-term healthy relationships. You lead by guilt, and you put the guilt trip on somebody, they may feel badly in the moment and go above and beyond to make up for it for a while. But leaders who lead by guilt eventually begin to push people away. You'll see it here when he does this, and he says, we're going to go find david one of his leaders says i'm not going to be a part of that i'm going to go tell david what's about to happen and and he, he he falls into the pitfall of here's how i'm going to control them here's how i'm going to get them to do what i want them to do i'm going to i'm going to just put guilt on them they can never do enough they, they can never be enough i was listening to a message probably preached a decade ago or so by pastor doug fisher you pray for him Earlier this, he was supposed to preach here in June. He had a heart surgery. It went well. And then about two or three weeks later, he had a stroke. And since then, he's had more seizures that I'm aware of. Uh, Since May, he's only spoken to his church for about four or five minutes one time. I I don't know. I've not heard a recent update, but he can't speak very well Is all of that. And, and And a wonderful, faithful, godly pastor in San Diego who's preached here many times at our men's meeting but I was listening to a message. It was actually on this exact chapter. He preached a message entitled, Leading by Guilt. And in that message, he said this. He said, those who lead by guilt will find themselves all alone by age 50 or 60 or 70. People will only come to see them out of duty, not desire. Leading by guilt. Now look at verse number nine. Let's wrap it up. Let's look at a few more verses in this chapter. Verse number nine. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul. He's one of the leaders in Saul's uh, kingdom. And he said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of the Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them to the king. And Saul said, Here now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, here, am I, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said unto him, Why, here it is again. Look, everybody's against him. Why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and has inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day? Saul, 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 David's not trying to kill you. He's not lying in wait to get you. He's not the boogeyman, but that's what he thinks. And now, now he's got a new enemy. Ahimelech has tried to help him, he thinks. Look at verse 14. What is Ahimelech's response? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son in law? Like, he had to remind him, Remember, your daughter married him? Remember, he was at Christmas last year, your family dinner? Remember that? He's your son in law? He says, Is the king's son in law and goeth at thy bidding? He does whatever you ask. He's honorable in your house. He's never done anything. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. I don't know of any plan of David trying to kill you, Saul. You're off your rocker. And by the way, who loves you more than David? What's wrong with you? Who has served better than you than David? Saul, where did your thinking go wrong? I can almost hear Ahimelech saying it. And he tells in, in Ahimelech here, we see he teaches us that toxic leaders turn on those who love the most and serve them best. Be careful about that in your life and in mine. He says, why would you turn on David? And may I stop and just say this here as well? If and when we find ourselves in an unhealthy situation like that, be in Ahimelech. Be willing to speak uncomfortable, hard truth in a gracious, respectful way when it's possible. I love the fact that he stopped here to try to do that. And, and, and with that in mind, let's look at it from the— so being a himelech here's the other side of it. Don't be a Saul. Here's a question for all of us to consider. This is a convicting one for me. Who can speak hard, uncomfortable truths in your life? Who can tell you and correct you? you know, I'm a little worried about this. I saw that. I'm not so sure that's exactly what you want to be doing. Or every time somebody tries to speak truth, the response is anger, or the response is to put them down, or the sp- response is retaliation. That's what Saul's going to do. He's about to retaliate in a major way against a elect for speaking truth. In your life and in mine, it's a dangerous thing if no one can speak constructive criticism into our lives. I used to get those report cards. I think we still do them in our school. Not just math and science and all of that, but you know those other ones where they have like the behavior things? You know those ones? You know what I'm talking about? I didn't like that section of the report card. (laughs) Talks in class. I got an A on that every time. I don't think that's how that worked, but whatever it was, like quiet in class. N-I, hey mom, what does N-I mean? Needs improvement. That's what I would get every time. And there was always this one. I didn't understand it. It said constructive criticism receives constructive criticism. I don't know what that means. Is that like you're in construction and they teach you how to build something? What is, what is constructive? When I was a kid, I remember asking my mom, I looked at my report card, and I'll be honest, academics were always pretty easy for me. I, I got good grades without trying too hard. I, I was pretty much a straight A student. That God, there's things that I'm not gifted with, but, but that kind of book learning is, is fairly, God made my brain, that that, that's kind of pretty easy for me. So I, my, my grade part was always awesome. It was the behavior part that was not so awesome. I got kicked out of school. I I dreaded the annual parent-teacher meetings. This is not a lie. They would have parent-teacher conferences at the school. I don't know if we still do this, but but the way they did it, they did it like all at one time. We set it up individually. And you came through, and when my mom would be gone from that single parent, so I didn't have another parent at home, she would go off to school, Bill, My mom would be gone, and she would come back, and I would be ready that I knew, okay, she's been gone about an hour, hour and a half. It'd be like 7.30 at night. I normally went to bed at whatever, 9, 10, I don't remember, whatever time it was. 7.30 at night, as soon as I heard the garage door open or I saw her lights come in the front, I ran to my room, turned the light off, got in bed, and acted like I'd been sleeping for a while. Because the worst thing for my life was my mom talking to my teachers. When my mom talked to my teachers, there were not good reports coming home. There was going to be—I knew at least one of them was going to be saying, you need to work with Ryan on such and such. He's causing this, and he's doing that. And, uh, and so I would on those parent-teacher. But I remember on the report card, constructive criticism needs improvement. I dare say there are a few of you out there that are a little bit like your pastor. You don't like it when people tell you what you're doing that needs improvement. Anybody out there, you're with me? Maybe some of you do like it. Okay, four or five of us that are honest. Some of you need improvement on, on, on admitting that you need constructive criticism. But a good sign you're on a path of toxicity in your relationships is if no one can or no one does give you constructive criticism. Some of us have ourselves deceived. Oh, no. I, my wife, my husband, my boss, my friend, my best friend, my mom, my dad, my teacher, my coach, my pastor, my youth pastor. Whatever. You just... They could give me constructive criticism, so let me change the question, not who can give you constructive criticism, because a lot of us will say, oh, yeah, I'll take that from that person, that person. Here's a the, here's the better question. Who was the last person that did? Because if no one is, it's a good sign that everyone around you thinks you won't take it. they figured out something in your life that you don't want to admit about your life or my life. If no one has in recent days corrected you or pointed out a blind spot in your life or said, you need to be careful about this, or maybe we should change that, or recently I've had my wife at times tell me, honey, recently you seem a little distant, or you've been a little harsh with the kids, or you know what, we need a little more family time. What is that? She's telling me for the health of our marriage and our family, Ryan, you've gotten a little out of balance, you've gotten a little out of focus here, and you know how I can respond in one of two ways. You're wrong. That's not true. I'm doing fine. I'm doing the best I can. Aren't you glad? that I'm providing a house for you? Aren't you glad you've got food? Or I can say, you know what? Maybe my godly sweet wife sees some things in my life that I need to work on. And by the way, I've responded in both ways throughout our 21-year marriage. I don't always respond the right way. But not only who can correct you, but who has recently. I read a a, a tweet from Pastor Bill Prater. uh, He's preached here. A couple years ago, he preached here. His son has preached for our teen camp, and he, he wrote yesterday, this was just yesterday, he wrote, do you have people in your life who give you constructive criticism? If not, listen to this, it's not because you've grown past it or because they can't find anything to criticize. More realistically, it's because they've learned that if they do offer it, it's not going to end well. Nobody could tell Saul anything. Be careful about that leading by guilt. Verse 16. So, what's his response? Ahimelech speaks truth. Look at this. Read verse 16 aloud. Read it nice and loud. Ready? Begin. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. Somebody speaks truth, you're done. Off with his head, not just him, his whole family. You're not going to tell me what's wrong with me. What did Ahimelech say? All Ahimelech had said was, I don't know of any plot to kill you, Saul. And in fact, all I know is David loves you. That's what he said. And Saul said, toxic leader, Saul said, I'm not listening to that. I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Verse number seventeen, and the king said to the footman that stood about him, "Turn and slay the priests of the Lord. I don't care who I hurt. Get them out of my life. I don't need any obstacles because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. Everybody was against Saul in his mind, but the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall on the priests of the Lord. Do you see that? They're like no." We're not going to kill God's God's men. We're not going to kill God's servants. They didn't do anything. Verse 18, and the king said to Doeg, turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priest and slew on that day four score and five persons that did wear a linen ephod, 85 priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, oxen, asses, and sheep with the edge of the sword, Saul, exploded. They won't listen. They say no. He says, Doag, do my dirty work. Doag kills 85 priests, wipes out a city, husbands, wives, moms, little infant babies, animals, goes on a rampage. Why? For a bunch of stuff he had built up in his own mind. He didn't care who he hurt. Number five, the fifth pitfall for every leader is overreaction. He exploded. How many lives were impacted and hurt because of this pitfall? When things didn't go his way, what did Saul do? He abused his authority and destroyed the lives of countless men, women, and children. What a wicked, godless abuse of power. I don't like this message very much because it hits too close to home for me. Do you overreact when things don't go your way? What we see here is our overreactions have the potential to do lasting damage in vital relationships in our lives. You know a verse that I remind myself often: the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. What do we do with our kids? Our kids do something, they're undisciplined, they lose their temper, they don't control their spirit, they 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 push their brother or sister down, they get in a fight, they throw a toy. And what do we do if we're not careful? The way we respond to their undisciplined angry behavior, what do we respond with? Undisciplined angry responses. You can't control yourself. You can't control your temper, son. No doubt I'm kind of like you. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Be careful. And this is this is an ongoing process for some, for many of us. But, but but remind yourself of that verse swift to hear slow to speak, slow to wrath. I've never regretted an email I didn't send in anger. I've never regretted a reaction with my wife for kids that I didn't do and I kept quiet and I waited. I've never regretted a phone call I didn't make, but you know, I've regretted plenty of those things that I did do in a moment of overreaction. Don't use a blowtorch to light a candle and don't use a fire extinguisher to put out a candle. It's been said to the man whose only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Test pilots, I'm told, have a litmus test for analyzing and evaluating problems. Pilots, when something goes wrong, here's the thing they ask before they overreact. Is it still flying? If it's still flying, it's not time to panic, and it's not time to overreact. If the answer is yes, it's still flying, there's no immediate danger, no need to overreact. When Apollo 12 took off, the spacecraft unexpectedly was hit by lightning. The entire console began to glow with orange and red trouble lights. There was a temptation to do something. Let's go fix it. But the pilots asked themselves, is this thing still flying? And is it still flying in the right direction? The answer was yes, it was still headed for the moon. They let the lights glow as they addressed the individual problems one by one patiently, and little by little, each red and orange light slowly got turned off, the problem got dealt with." Something to think about in our pressure situations, isn't it? If your thing, whatever that is, is still flying, it's probably not time to overreact. Slow down. Some issues do need drastic, immediate attention, but most need patient, loving care. So as you and I are taking inventory of our relationships, do you see any of these pitfalls in your leadership, in your roles in life? Do you see the pitfall of comparison? Constantly holding over people's heads what you can do for them and how much you've done for them and what they would lose if they didn't have you? Leaders who make every relationship a competition or a test of allegiance are insecure leaders. What about the pitfall of suspicion? Do you analyze and look at everybody and how they're out to get you? Do you live in constant fear that someone's trying to hurt you? Here's what I'm trying to do, and maybe you'll try to do it with me. Learn to just try to love God the way He loves us and leave the rest to Him. Here's the reality. If you love enough people, some of them are going to hurt you. But, but you're not going to do any good by suspecting that everybody's going to hurt you. You're just going to affect your own relationships. What about that third pitfall, accusation? Do you overstate and escalate issues? You make things bigger than they are. You get other people all worked up. There are people that I've learned that if they bring me a report, okay, it's probably not as bad as they're telling me. I didn't know that the first few times they brought me a report, and they got me, they got me worked up. Pastor, did you know this? Honey, did you know my wife? I said, honey. My wife's only one says that, so it's not my wife, but Pastor, did you know this? And, and did you know that? Did you hear this? And oh man, the school's blown, falling apart. The church, I think we're gonna have a church split. I heard of so-and-so. Did you see that one? It's all over social media. And I go, and there's one person that had a negative comment, didn't like, didn't like one song we sang. Okay. I hope you like the songs we sing, but one person not liking one song we sing is different than a church split. Be careful. Be careful at overstating things. And I've had to learn when some people bring me a report, I stop and I say, okay, let me check that out a little bit and find out they're a little prone to over-escalating the situation. To, to, to making it a little bigger than it is. Always using the words, always, none, never, all of them, all of those people, a lot of people. You know what I've learned when someone comes up and says, I, I, I know a lot of the people in church are talking about this. You know what that usually means? Me and two or three of my friends have been gossiping. There's a lot of people in church that are really concerned about this. Oh, really? Okay, can you give me the list, because I like to meet with them individually so we can deal with it. Well, um, um, it's me and my husband. Um, and I think, I think we talked to our teenage kids about it. Maybe us four. Yeah, us four. And I'm not trying to minimize if there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. I'm not trying to minimize that we can't have those conversations, but, but I've found oftentimes a lot of people or everyone means me, or one or two other people I've talked with. Be careful in your own life, in your family, in your own leadership, that, that overstating the accusation. You fall into that pitfall of leading by guilt. God doesn't lead us by guilt. He leads us by love. In any arena, listen to this, in any arena, followers who do things only out of guilt or duty will quickly become joyless and will eventually do whatever they can to escape that toxic environment. In any arena, followers who do things only out of guilt or duty will quickly become joyless and will eventually do whatever they can to escape that toxic environment. And the last pitfall of overreaction, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Let's try not to overreact to problems. Be a steady leader. They say the average pastor leaves his church over an average of seven critics. What is that? The problem gets bigger in our minds and we overreact. Here's the reality. Whatever you're going through right now, if it's good, it's probably not as good as you think. And if it's bad, it's probably not as bad as you think. We have a tendency to overinflate whatever it is we're walking through at the moment. We become myopic. Ask God to give you a steady, secure, patient spirit when difficulties arise, because almost always we look back at the things that we thought were gonna be the end of the world, and we realize they weren't nearly as bad as we thought they were in the moment. Time and perspective can do that for an issue, can't they? That thing that we were ready to walk out on, on whatever it might be, on whatever role of our life, we were ready to walk out, run away, get out. Most of the time, it wasn't as bad, if we'll give it some time and perspective, as we thought it was. You probably don't need to quit that job because the boss corrected you. Teen, you probably don't need to run away from home because your parents have some rules you don't like. Church member, you probably don't need to find another church because you had some conflict. Pastor, you probably don't need to quit because you have a critic. Boss, you probably don't need to fire that employee because they dropped the ball on an assignment. I close with this story. There was only one living American who was not on Earth on 9-11. His name was astronaut Frank Culbertson. He was circling the Earth in the International Space Station on 9-11-2001. While cameras and eyes were fixed on the two burning towers, all the debris, people jumping out of the buildings, smoke, fire, death, injury, that was all that was on every camera zoomed in on and on all of our TV screens. While that's what we were all watching, he saw something more. Through the crackling communication link to NASA, Commander Colbertson spoke of what he saw about two to three hundred miles above Manhattan. Why don't you hear these twenty seconds of audio with the real grainy video footage from his spaceship that day? Go ahead and play that. Um, I just wanted the folks to, to know that their city still looks very beautiful from space. I know it's very difficult for everybody in America right now, and um, I know folks are struggling very hard to uh, to deal with this and recover from it. But, uh, country still looks good. And for New Yorkers, your city still looks great from up here. I don't know if you can hear that. Here's what he said. He said, I just wanted the folks to know that their city still looks very beautiful from space. I know it's very difficult for everybody in America right now. The country still looks good. And for New Yorkers, your city still looks great from up here. That remarkable video clip shows a beautiful day in which the great tragedy is evident through the rising smoke, but it also reveals hundreds of millions of people in the United States that were alive and safe. It was a perspective that could only come from someone witnessing the events from above. Your city still looks beautiful. The country still looks beautiful. And here's the reality— When we can pull ourselves out with a little perspective and understand God sees things in ways we don't see them and try to get a little perspective on that thing that's consuming us. We can't get past this one. This one's too big. Don't build it up in your mind. Saul, he got himself believing all kinds of things that couldn't have been farther from the truth. And because of it, he destroyed every important relationship in his life he killed people, he, he destroyed relationships, family relationships, professional relationships, he lived in suspicion, he lived in guilt, he lived in anger, he lived in bitterness. And you and I can do some of those very same things. Have you identified one or two of those that you're prone to in your areas of leadership? One or two of those things that we saw there from the Apostle Paul, overreaction, accusation, suspicion. Guilt, those things that we look and they're not true. Comparison. Let's do our best to lead from a secure, Christ like space in the lives and relationships God's given us. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.